Today's guest on the Cuse Conversations podcast is an author, teacher, consultant, speaker, and negotiation and conflict resolution specialist. One of the first things I say to people is hold off on deciding, like ask questions. Like your job in negotiation is to try to understand, as I mentioned, you know, information is the currency of negotiation. And the only way you get that is by asking questions and then listening. Whether you're trying to land a big business deal, angling to get a raise, or just trying to get your teenager to do some chores, I promise you're going to pick up a few tips from Joshua Weiss, a 1991 Syracuse University graduate. Hi, my name is Chris Velarde. I'm the Director of Digital Engagement and Communications in the Office of Alumni Engagement and a 1995 Syracuse grad. Joshua's latest book, The Book of Real-World Negotiations, breaks down strategies that will help you get through those often difficult discussions, from high-stakes matters of global policy to dinner table debates over who's going to clean up the dishes. There are some surprisingly common threads that, when understood, can help lead to resolution. We'll cover that and more, but we'll start with what attracted Joshua to Syracuse University in the first place. Well, it's an interesting question. For me, you know, I was a little bit unclear what it was that I really wanted to do and actually came to campus uh, in April. Um, and it happened to be a beautifully sunny day. Um, and <laughs> I was deceived a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, honestly, I, I, I came and I, I had a friend who went there and, and thought I would go look and I actually thought I was going to be going somewhere else, and, and I just sort of fell in love with the campus when I came, and then came back one more time just to make sure that it was what I thought it was, and it really was. I mean, it was sort of love at first sight in 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 many regards, and it, it proved to be great for me. I, I was a bit of a slow starter um, in life, and um, and so, you know, coming and having the opportunity to explore and try to figure out what it was that I wanted to do um, was perfect for me at Syracuse. And there was a lot of help. There were a lot of folks there that were interested in wanting me to succeed. And honestly, without it, and without that sort of orientation, you know, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing today. And, and even just uh, a number of the faculty who really took an interest in me, um, I'm not still not sure why exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it was that kind of orientation that I think really helped me to, to, um, to, to grow and, and to really come out of Syracuse not feeling like I had a, a, a much more firm footing than when I went in, for sure. When you went in and, and when you came out, what did you think you wanted to do and, and kind of what, what happened along the way and, and how did that shape what you have, uh, have turned your, your life into? Well, you know, it's interesting because when I went, I really wasn't sure. I always, I, I ended up becoming a history major and I actually, um, had always loved history. And, and in part, when I left, I, I still sort of wasn't 100% clear what it was that I was going to be doing, you know, upon departure. But I felt like I had changed a lot just from an educational point of view. Like I, I learned how to think, I learned how to critically analyze and understand what was going on around me. And, and it's those kinds of things. I mean, I teach now the university level and it's really those kinds of things that are most important from my point of view for anybody coming out of a, a university. I mean, it's invaluable if you can um, have that and possess that kind of way of viewing the world, because I think the world throws a lot of things at you and you have to be able to decipher your way. So I, I came out and I was still a little bit unclear. And um, it was interesting because my, my journey was nothing. There was no sort of straight line, really. 
Um, what I think the degree helped me to do was actually to become really curious about life. And so my, my mom is actually Canadian and um, her family had a land management company in Canada and they were looking for somebody from my sort of generation to run it. And I went up there and it was interesting, but kind of knew that it wasn't what I was going to do with my life. And a friend of mine, I spoke to a friend of mine toward the end of that first year and and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, things are going okay, but I'm probably going to head back. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. And I said, what are you up to? And he said, well, I actually just bought a round-the-world ticket. I'm going to go backpacking for a year. And I said, really? That's interesting. And he said, why do you want to go? And I said, yeah, I really do. And I think in part, you know, the things that I ended up studying at Syracuse were part of, when I look back, were part of the reason why I wanted to do that because I, I really sort of you know, history forms the basis for so much of what it is that we think we know about the world. And then when you go and see it, some of it's true and some of it's not. And, you know, backpacking around the world is a unique experience. Um, I sold everything I owned and, and spent that year and, and went from place to place. And one of the things that happened to me was that my world was sort of flipped upside down. Um, I ended up, the, the one theme that was sort of running through everything that I did was conflict. Um, I kept finding myself in the middle of all these conflicts, whether they were, I was in India, there was a Hindu Muslim riot that broke out um, right around me. I was um, in Nepal and I was trying to go from Kathmandu to Pakra to, to go um, hiking. And there was a, a lorry driver, a truck driver strike. Um, and so we ended up sitting on this road for 12 hours while folks were negotiating the end to the truck driver strike on the, on the table on the side of the road and then ended up in the former Yugoslavia when it was coming apart. And, you know, a big part of my story as well from a history point of view is that my grandmother's family all died in the Holocaust. So I ended up going and try, one of the things that happened was she didn't know where, where they actually died. Um, and so I went to six different concentration camps trying to understand and see if there was anything, you know, any knowledge about them. So when I came back, and maybe it was some still some naive, you know, you know, optimism or something, but I kind of felt like I had to make some kind of a difference in the world. And and so started down the road of studying conflict. Uh, and and that's really and it's funny because when I look back in Syracuse at the time, you know, there were a number of courses. Um, one of them was on uh, Vietnam in the 60s, and another one was on nonviolence. And when I look back, the roots of everything that I've done since then were really started then, but I didn't know it. And, um, and so, yeah, when I got back, I ended up going to graduate school and got my master's and my PhD in conflict analysis and resolution. And, and you know, it's fascinating to me because there's, you know, the skill of handling conflict is not something that most people think about. And yet conflict is everywhere. It's all around us all the time. And uh, it's, it's sort of stunning to me that we don't teach. And we're getting better. We're teaching kids and things like that. But the fact that we don't teach this at a broad level, um, you know, I think highlights what a lot of the problems that we have in our society and in our world because people don't really know what to do with a conflict when it emerges in front of them. So, you know, I, I've really sort of in many ways um, tried to make it my life's work to get these skills and this knowledge. Um, to as many people as I can. You know, those of us who have attended Syracuse are familiar with Syracuse University know the phrase, knowledge crowns those who seek her. And, and that is something that it sounds like um, you s continue to seek 
um, and uh, and and have certainly um, been able to take that and now trying to provide knowledge to others in this area of of conflict resolution. And you know, this is certainly an interesting time to be talking about conflict resolution. You know, obviously there is conflict all around us. Um, and I think what's, what's interesting is that the, the levels of conflict resolution, you know, if you kind of just throw it out there, people may kind of think world level, you know, government level. But something you just said is, is really important, and that is that it's all around us all the time, which I would imagine means that we're constantly in a position to need to know how to negotiate. That's right. And negotiation is one of our primary tools for solving conflict. And so if you think about your day, right? I mean, at work um, with your boss, your colleagues, your coworkers, those that might work for you, um, you know, with your families, you know, many of us, you and I are probably in an age where we negotiate with our parents, you know, to try to help them along. Um, and then we're negotiating with our, our kids, our teens and our spouses and all of that. And then the world around you, I mean, whether it's credit card companies or buying a home or a car or whatever it might be, we're doing this all the time. And, and that's the, one of the things that I really try to emphasize to folks that, you know, negotiation is not just a skill set. It's not just a subset of what it is that you might do at your job. Um, and in fact, lots of people don't actually think they negotiate, but they really do. Um, and I think when you see it in that broad way, it becomes a, a skill and a, and a mindset because how you think about what it is you're doing when it comes to a conflict or when you're negotiating matters greatly. And it, it, you know, if you go in and you think, okay, there's got to be a way to solve this problem, which is what my orientation has become. I mean, I generally, any kind of issue that arises, I think there has to be a solution here. We, I just have to find it. As opposed to, there's nothing we can do. Let's just throw our hands up. Let's, you know, let's go down the legal route. Whatever it is, we're very quick to do other things than to sit down with our neighbor and say, hey, look, you know, this tree is leaning over on my property. Let's talk about what we do about it. Well, that, that sounds like trying to get to a place of not necessarily agreement, maybe compromise, um, but certainly solution. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I think one of the things, and, and I don't want this to turn into, I don't think any, anyone listening wants it to turn into any type of a, a political discussion, mm -hmm. but I think one of the things that we're seeing happen largely in the world is us against them, you against me and and disagreement with with very difficult to find any type of common ground um yeah. how important is it to find common ground and and you know your example with a neighbor is certainly a, a great one it's it's something that i'm sure everyone can kind of at some level have has dealt with in their life but is common ground crucial to all of this so common ground is helpful. It's interesting because a lot of times people will say to me, um, well, we just got to find common ground and then we'll be okay. And I say, you know, yes and no. I mean, common ground suggests to you that there's an interconnected nature to what you're doing and that you have a, a goal that you share. And that's important. But actually, you know, when it comes to trying to deal with conflict or negotiate effectively, it's actually in the differences where we actually find solutions. Because if I understand very clearly what is important to you, what, one of the surprising things when it comes to conflict is a lot of times when you sharpen the conflict and you really get clear what the problem is about, which doesn't happen nearly enough, um, you begin to realize that maybe you don't conflict as much as you think or you're conflicting in different places. And so 
from my point of view, part of the problem is we're not analyzing conflict properly. It's a little bit like if you were to go to a doctor and your, you know, your head hurts and he's looking at your knee, you'd think, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> and, and I think that's part of the challenge um, is that most people, when we start to talk about a conflict societal or whatever it might be, um, we don't take the time to say, what's this really about? And, and, you know, pull the rhetoric back and try to understand what's really driving people because it's that motivation that's really important. And our perceptions and our assumptions cloud so much of what goes on when we're talking about conflict or when we're negotiating that we don't even get to the core of the problem because we're so, you know, rooted in our own view of the world. And, and I think we also tend to view things that are, um, you know, that seem antithetical to what we believe as in that narrative that you mentioned, like good versus bad, you know, and, and confirmation bias that basically, you know, people are now looking for what are the things that, um, you know, that I agree with, and then I hone in on those things and the things that I don't agree with that might be valid, kind of push them aside. And so part of that is to, is to say, you know, and to start thinking, what are people afraid of here? Because I think fear is a big motivator when it comes to conflict and in negotiation in particular, the fear of losing something, the fear of looking bad. I mean, so much of all of this is psychological in nature that we all um, go through life trying to preserve our reputation at all costs. And conflicts push up against that in a really challenging way. No doubt. Is this, and maybe this is a silly question, but can anyone do this? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm not a believer that that leaders or negotiators are born. Um, I teach a, a master's degree program. I direct a master's degree program. And for us, it's all about your ceiling. Everyone has one. And, you know, you might have a certain, a higher ceiling because, you know, you, you do have certain traits that might help you. You know, some people are more extroverted and there are some benefits to being extroverted when it comes to leadership and negotiation. But you know, a lot of introverts say to me, well, I'm not really comfortable with people. So how do I do this? And I say, you know, actually, as an introvert, you know, one of the real keys to negotiation, for example, is noticing, is paying attention to what's going on around you and listening carefully. Because information is the currency of negotiation. And introverts are much more attuned to the relationship. They're much more turn attuned to listening to what people are saying. And so I often say, listen, you're really far along on being able to succeed as a negotiator because you already do the hardest thing um, possible, which is listen really well. Most of us think we listen well, but we really don't. We kind of take things in and we filter them out, but we're too busy getting our story or getting our counter argument in place to really be listening. So I really do genuinely believe that everybody can do this. And you know, not everyone is going to be a world leader, but but to me, leadership is about actions. It's actually not about a role that we take on. I, I know a lot of people who are put into leadership positions that I would never call a leader. <laughs> it's, it's a very different thing um, because, you know, the best leaders are humble. They understand the interconnected nature between themselves and those followers, the people that they need. Um, things along those lines. So yeah, I really do believe people can learn it. And it's interesting when you teach people, and I've you know, had the pleasure of teaching people for a while, these skills, it's like light bulbs go off. And they, and I mean, people email me years later saying, I can't believe 
I, you know, made it to my mid forties without knowing this stuff and how my life has changed as a result of being in say that master's degree program that I run um, just because of the way they've changed their mindset and their, and the skill set that goes along with everything. It, you know, it's interesting there. You, you certainly are aware of the people who kind of rush towards the argument. And, and I, and I use argument because often that is the result uh, when yeah. someone rushes into it. And then there are those who absolutely want to do everything in their power to avoid conflict. Yeah. And so would rather, you know, exchange emails than have to have a face-to-face conversation and, right. you know, and, and take their time and really let things process and hope it'll just kind of resolve itself. Mm-hmm. Um, how, with those two extremes, how do you, um, you know, if you, let's say you've got those two extremes mm-hmm. dealing with a certain circumstance, how would you deal with, with those two extremes? Yeah, well, there is something called conflict styles. There are actually five of them that exist. And, and we, generally speaking, each take on at least one of those um, as a primary approach. So one is competing, which is kind of what you're talking about. Another is avoiding. Um, another is accommodating. Then you have sort of compromisers or people in the middle. And then you have what we would call sort of collaborators or problem solvers. And I think the two that you've talked about um, are probably the most challenging to deal with. I think the, the, the issue with computers is computers are going to advocate strongly for what it is that they need. Um, and often at this, you know, at the sake of the relationship. And I think what what folks who come at this from a competitive point of view need to understand is that really life is all about relationships. And if you take a short-term focus and you don't value the relationship, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I can't tell you how many competitors who I've talked to have said begrudgingly, yeah, that's true, that you know, I burned this bridge and it came back to haunt me in a way that I never imagined it would. And that's how life works. Like, and I often say to my kids, don't burn bridges in life. Like you, you need to walk away. You know, if you can't manage things, walk away, but do it in a way where you don't, you know, you don't destroy things that may make your life difficult down the road. Don't, don't fight to win the battle at the risk of losing the war, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the flip side, you know, people who are, that I find are either accommodators or avoiders. I mean, accommodators, you know, they're much more concerned about the relationship. And, and so they're willing to give up what, it, what they need. And the problem with that is that when you never have your needs met, eventually it becomes incredibly frustrating, right? And, and life gets frustrating. And that's why, you know, people love to work with accommodators, but eventually accommodators leave because they're like, you know, I, I don't ever get anything I need from this. Um, and so for them, it's all about assertiveness. It's a, because you have to be able to assert for yourself, um, and assertiveness, you know, people confuse assertiveness and aggressiveness. Assertiveness is standing on your own two feet. Aggressiveness is standing on somebody else's toes. And there's a big difference, right? And so, you know, I teach a lot of people, um, you know, how to assert effectively for yourself. And I also try to help people to understand that conflict itself is not a, a negative thing. Um, most people tend to think it is, their experience is such, but conflict actually is kind of neutral. It happens because we see different worlds. We have different needs. We have different things. How you end up dealing with it makes it positive or negative. I mean, when I work through a conflict with somebody, my relationship is now strengthened um, going forward. And I know that, you know, if I go through a difficult time or a challenge, I can then, you know, fall back on that and say, listen, Bill, you and I worked through that last problem. Sure, we can do it again. So, you know, 
there's that. And there's also conflict serves a purpose. It, it pretty much sort of says something here isn't working. And so we have to fix it. Um, and I, and again, like to me, that's the orientation that, that I think is really important to have. So when a conflict comes up for me, you know, I'm like, okay, it's another problem to be solved. Um, not necessarily, it's not their fault or my fault or whatever. Like you have to avoid the blame game at all costs because the blame game doesn't go anywhere. It, it, it you know, um, and, and I will say, you know, one of my favorite lines is conflict, unlike wine, doesn't age well. And, and I really, you know, that's the problem that people don't seem to understand. Uh, their conflicts, when they first emerge, are most solvable. But the longer they go on, you know, they almost metastasize in complexity where, you know, it might have started with one single issue and now you, people start adding other grievances or problems to it people start talking to their friends about it. So now you went from two people sitting down to, you know, entire encampments of people on either side of an issue. Um, and so, so, you know, people, it's not easy, but if people step into a conflict um, and manage their way through it, all you have to do it is, all you have to do is do it once and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, and I think most people have in their life kind of dealt with something. They probably don't see it that way but they probably dealt with something effectively and said, okay, that wasn't as bad as I thought. Yeah. You know, it's, there is never a one size fits all approach um, because conflicts by their nature are various levels of difficult. Mm -hmm. And then as you mentioned, the, the various personalities and approaches on any side uh, makes it even more complicated. And so is identifying all of those pieces kind of the first step, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it's interesting because when, when I talk to people about dealing with conflict or negotiating in particular, um, I'll say, you know, if I, have a, if I take 100% of my time, um, probably 75% of it is spent in the preparation phase before I ever get in the room. Hmm. And the reason is because, so first of all, when you try to deal with a conflict, you can't go in with a plan that I'm going to do A and then I'm going to go to B and then to C. It doesn't work that, that way. Conflicts aren't linear. Uh, in that way. And so instead, you have to go through the preparation process. So Eisenhower, President Eisenhower said, plans are useless, but planning is everything, right? And so, and that's, you know, when you go through, say, a contingency planning way of viewing things, you have a very different approach. You might have four or five avenues you can go down. It's a little bit like kind of playing chess, right? If you walk in and you start playing chess and you think you're just going to, you know, follow a particular line of thought, it doesn't work. You have to have multiple kind of ways that you can take a problem. And so, so from my point of view, you know, that, that planning is essential and, but it has to be coupled with sort of an agile mindset. Um, a lot of times when people are learning about dealing with conflict or negotiating, they want to have a plan because it's comforting, right? It's like, if I just do this, I'll get there. And Essentially, we use sort of the 80-20 rule, which basically means it's about 80% of a conflict or a negotiation that you can know and understand before you get in the room. The other 20% is going to be uncertainties. It's going to be curveballs that the other side throws at you. So you have to have sort of an agile mindset. Um, you have to be adaptable with how you go about handling the challenge in front of you. So yeah, so preparation is really fundamental. And and honestly, when I sit down and start talking to people about this, they'll say, I, I don't ever prepare. Or if I do, um, you know, it's really tangential. And, and so 
you know, I often will say, I mean, think about it like when you go to take a test, which we all did at Syracuse and other places, right? If you're not prepared, you're going to crash and burn. And it's the same thing when it comes to a complicated process like conflict or negotiating a difficult deal. You have to go through and think through what is it that my counterpart needs here? What pressure are they under? So it's not just about what you need as well. It's, it's thinking about they're not going to say yes unless I meet their interest. So there's an interdependency that's part of all of these processes. So part of it is being clear on what you want, need, and why. But also the other is what do they need? How do I get it so that I can, you know, connect the dots? And what dynamics are at play? You know, when you have power and you have time pressure and maybe if you're working globally, you've got cross-cultural constraints. It's complicated, but it can be done if you work your way through, you know, some of these processes, approaches, and frameworks that we work with folks to, to learn. So tell me, uh, tell me a little about the book. Um, you know, what, what, was, what was the motivation? It was this to try to, to reach a wider audience and, and share some of these, I don't know if they're secrets, but, but at least uh, some of this advice? Yeah, so, um, well, so it was interesting because I ended up doing a, a TEDx talk on, on the role of technology in negotiation and how do you use technology to negotiate effectively? Hmm. Because a lot of times people will often say that you negotiating face-to-face is the best way to do things. And, and I would say yes and no. Uh, and, and it would go back to, you know, those people who find negotiating very anxiety-producing. For them, you know, email is actually a blessing because they don't have to feel the angst um, from sitting across from somebody who's getting really upset and, and they don't have to give up what matters to them just to relieve that anxiety, right? So email on some level helps people to think more clearly about what's in front of them, to take the pressure off of things. Um, I mean, there's a lot of pitfalls. You can find plenty of them on the web about what not to do. Um, but in terms of the book, um, so what ended up happening is I wrote the, uh, I did this TED Talk and, and Wiley uh, Publications got in touch with me and said, you know, we really liked your TED Talk. Would you like to write a book? And I thought, well, okay. And they said, well, what do you want to do it on? And I said, I don't know, I have to think about it. And I hearken back, so I started, in between my master's and PhD, I started working at Harvard University at a place called the Program on Negotiation, which is a negotiation think tank. And um, one of the things that was fascinating is I used to go to these faculty dinners, and everybody there, there would be 20, 25 people there, and they would talk about these cases, at these real-world examples and scenarios that they were working on or they were helping parties with, and it was absolutely fascinating. And the one problem was there were 25 of us that were privy to this. And it always stuck in the back of my mind that if I could write a book, I would want to try to use real world cases to show people what negotiation really looks like. Because you used earlier, you used the word compromise. To me, compromise in in so many ways is a lazy way of negotiating. Um, it's rushing to the split the difference kind of way of doing things as opposed to really digging in and saying, do I really know what it is that people want and need in this case and what they value? Because negotiation is all about value. And I don't just mean money. I mean, you know, if I were to ask you, what do you like about your job? Hopefully you would say, well, my pay is okay. But you would also talk about your connection to Syracuse. You would talk about the flexibility. You would talk about, there's a whole host of things that people value in their negotiations. And we don't look at those. Um, a lot of times, you know, I go to parties like all of us, and it's a little bit like being a doctor. You know, when you go to a, a, a party as a doctor, they say, oh, I have this ailment, right? When you're talking to somebody, 
Well, when I tell people what I do, they're like, oh, I have this conflict or, oh, I have this negotiation. What do I do? Right. So, and, and I, there are a lot of myths about negotiation that are out there that, that are untrue and actually quite destructive if you want to be an effective negotiator. And I have these, like, I was actually just having a conversation with a woman about two weeks before my book came out. She's like, oh, the best negotiated solutions are ones where everybody leaves a little bit unhappy. And I said, why would you think that? Like, why, what orientation are you bringing to the table? If that's the way you think about it, that's where you're going to end up. So instead of trying to tell people, hey, um, I, I think you might be missing the boat on some of these things, I decided I wanted to just show them and say, let me use real world cases to do this. And one of the hard parts, so when I presented this to Wiley, they were sort of like, oh, that's great. I thought they were going to say, no, thanks, not interested. <laughs> and when they said, that sounds great, we'd love to do it. I you, were thought, ready to, you were ready to negotiate, weren't you? I was. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the challenge was I have some cases in the book, but I didn't have enough to write my own book. So I had to rely on colleagues and friends and others in, in this world. And I was part of the challenge is that, you know, the reason there aren't a ton of real world negotiation cases out there because of the challenges around confidentiality and, and how people might look. So I was really lucky when I started reaching out to people in the field and asking if they would share, you know, 25 or 22 of them agreed to, to share their cases. And, you know, the names and the, the names of the companies and the people are changed, but but what's not changed is the how. And that's really what I was trying to do in this book is show people when you're confronted with a really difficult problem. And in the book, you know, there are cases from peace processes um, to hostage negotiations to international business cases all the way down to domestic business cases in the U.S. But all of the cases have a really difficult negotiation problem to solve. And they all solve them in one way or another through this creative thinking and problem solving and understanding what's really going on behind the scenes um, as they move through a process. I want to circle back to, to something, um, mm -hmm. which was the idea of, of compromise not really being what you should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. The idea, as that woman mentioned to you, of kind of having nobody happy at the end. And this idea that right now we seem to be living in a world of you're a winner, or you're a loser. You're with us or you're against us. Yeah. As, as you look at negotiation, can there be two winners at the end? So I, I don't, the terminology of win-win has been thrown around a lot. I, I always strive for that in my negotiation. I know the other side has to get what they want in order to say yes, just like I do. But that doesn't always mean everybody gets everything they want. So what, the way that I talk about it is as a mutual gain. And, and what that means is that you and I are starting here at this place, right? And if we can do better than where we are, each of us and collectively, then that's great. You know, there's a, there's a, a great negotiation book called Getting to Yes that changed the landscape of negotiation. And the book begins just as a, as a way of explaining why I think compromise is a, is a, is a bit of a, um, sort of, it's an approach that often leaves value on the table. So hmm. getting to yes starts with a, a, a story of two sisters who are arguing over an orange and they're going back and forth and saying, I want that orange is mine. No, it's mine. 
And um, they basically decide to just cut the orange in half and they each take half, right? That would be a compromise solution. But one of the girls wants the fruit. She wants to eat it. And the other, so she peels, you know, the peel off and throws the peel away and starts eating the fruit. The other girl wants to make a cake using the, the orange peel, the rind of the orange. And so she starts, you know, she throws away the fruit and starts making her cake. And had they both talked about why it was that they needed the orange, they would have each had twice as much. But, in, but instead, they just compromised. Now, that's a trite little story. But, but for example, in my book, when you read the cases, what you come away with is that compromise wouldn't have worked in most of these situations, that they had to ask the question, why do you need the orange? And when you asked it, you realized, huh, um, actually, that's not the part of the orange that I need. So if people take the time to get down to what's really driving them, see, the thing is, we, in, in negotiation, we talk about positions and interests. The positions of those girls were, I want the orange, no, I want it. And so we're going to split it, right? They didn't know why they wanted it. Now, take that and put it into a business context. We often don't know why the other person is asking for what they're asking for. We make assumptions all the time about why they're asking for it, or they just want more money, or they want more of this. And the reality is, if you find what, what matters to people in negotiation, and think broadly, because again, it's that value piece that I mentioned. You know, If I start exploring with you what, what you value in a given situation, then all kinds of possibilities open up. There's another great little story, which is that there's an employee who goes into her boss's office and asks for a raise. And the boss says, sorry, we're already over budget for the year. Can't help you. And it turns out that the employee was asking for a raise, not because of money, but because of recognition, because she was working as, much, as part of a team with three other people who all had a, a, a higher, a senior title and other things, right? So had the boss bothered to say, hey, why do, you, why do you think, why do you want a raise? Or why do you think a raise is reasonable or justified, right? It opens up a conversation and what is unsolvable now becomes solvable because you actually understand why it is somebody's asking. So, you know, one of the first things I say to people is hold off on deciding, like ask questions. Like your job in negotiation is to try to understand, as I mentioned, you know, information is the currency of negotiation. And the only way you get that is by asking questions and then listening. Like people will tell you if you go through a process and you're saying, so why does that matter to you? Like, why is this so important? Right? I've never had somebody say, no, that's none of your damn business. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, I think there are a lot, like I said, there are a lot of common misconceptions and I try to dispel a number of those at the beginning of the book because I want people to just try to, and, and, and I, you know, try to challenge people at the beginning to look for these things about what make people great negotiators. Because I talk about that in the book are, there's sort of five principles. And I say, go on a bit of a treasure hunt. When you read the book and you're reading these cases, look for the problem-solving mindset. Look for the balance between short-term and long-term um, interests and things like that. Um, and I hope, you know, there's a great quote that I've always loved. It's sort of, it goes along the lines of, you know, if somebody, um, if there's a, a, a stick is crooked, um, it's very hard to convince somebody, right? Especially in our world today, that it's really crooked if they believe it's straight. So the best thing that you can do is lay a straight stick next to that crooked stick 
to show them. And that's, to me, that's what storytelling is all about. And that's why I kind of chose that medium for these cases, because you, if you read a story like this and you know what happened, you can't deny that's how effective negotiation works. Makes a, makes a lot of sense and is applicable in so many, as, as you've mentioned, so many aspects of life. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, I, I want to ask you um, just kind of, to, again, circling back to where we started, to, to yeah. Syracuse University um, and, and what it means to you to be part of this, this big orange family. Yeah, it really does mean a lot. You know, I um, honestly, I, since I left Syracuse, um, my life has grown and changed in ways that I never imagined. But when I really think back to my time there, so many of the things that I've learned actually, you know, kind of were rooted there. And I'll just give you one example. I remember, um, and there, there's just, there was always a, a sort of this caring quality to my experience there. Um, and I remember I was taking a, a course um, called Civil War and Reconstruction. And I remember g- going and uh, it was a course with 150, 200 students. And I remember the faculty member, I won't say his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But uh, I remember he, he called me up at the end of class one day and he said, I want you to come and, and talk to me um, you know, tomorrow or whenever you're free. And I went and, and I sat down and he said, you know, Every now and again, I see a student like you who comes through this program and comes through my course, and I see them wasting their talent. And I thought to myself, first of all, how does he know this? I'm like one of 200 people in this class. And, and, and he said, you know, you have so much potential that you don't understand. And again, I, I kept thinking to myself, I don't know how this, how this gentleman knows this about me, but... When I left that room, I was never the same, mm-hmm. never. Like he was the first person genuinely, and this was my sophomore of the year, that, that believed in me and my ability. Um, I mentioned I was a little bit of a slow starter, so nobody had ever seen that in me um, or thought about that with, you know, in, in my abilities. Um, and I still to this day don't know how he saw it, and, but I did send him a letter many, many years later, and he... Um, got in touch with me and said, you know, this is why I teach because of the story that you told me. And, and I think that's emblematic of, of, you know, Syracuse and my experience there. And, and you know, I, I love coming back there for basketball and football games. And, um, and I love the pride. You know, I grew up in the Boston area and Boston is a proud place to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I saw that in Syracuse too, that, you know, people bleed orange and it means a lot. And, it, and it's great to be part of that that family. If you love Syracuse University, you just don't get tired of hearing stories like that. The teacher who singled out a student challenged him and by doing so changed his life. If you're interested in learning more about Joshua Weiss's book, The Book of Real World Negotiations, there's a link in the description of this podcast. If you'd like to hear more from interesting alumni, make sure you subscribe to the Cuse Conversations podcast. It is available in all the places you'd expect. I'm Chris Velarde. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and go Orange.